Chapter 11, Birch Bark House Hunger Death, the visitor, had stayed long that year and had taken many anishin big to the next world. Those left behind had the task of going on with life even as the harshest snow fell, the bitter cold deepened, the game hid, and the fish sank deeper into the lake. Now, as Omakaius began to gain a little strength, she wished heartily to eat and craved any sort of food at all. But there was only enough cornmeal in the morning for a few mouthfuls of mush, only enough wild rice for a handful each during the day. The family scrounged a potato, sometimes a bit of bannock. No meat once the fish and dried venison from the meat cache were gone. Omakaius was strong enough to bring in wood, though she trembled as she walked. Mama improved slowly, too. At least she got stronger physically. Her face remained unchanging and sad, and her eyes remained haunted by the sorrow of Niwa's loss. Dede was recovering slow, so slowly that he didn't have the strength to hunt. Though he tried to fish, he hadn't much luck and could, stand, could not stand the cold for long. He had to borrow against next year's furs. The family ran up a bill at the trader's, bought expensive salt pork. One day he notched his counting stick and spoke to Omakaius. Cadet will have all of next year's furs by the time this winter is finished, he said, unless some game throws itself at us, or unless I get Cadet another way. His eyes flashed and the shadow of a grin twisted on his face. The intrigue of the old Dede who'd never been sick. Bring me the chess game, he said to Omokaius. She knew just where it was, that precious set that had belonged to Dede's grandfather, the man who had taught him the Chimukuman game. The chess set was always reverently kept in its own blanket, hidden in a corner of the room with the medicine bags and Dede's ceremonial clothes. Wrapped in red cloth, it was considered something very special. Every few days, Dede took it out to play solitary games and try to teach the strategies to others. Carefully now, she bore it in her arms to Dede. He took the chess set and there, before the fire, he arranged the pieces in their special order. The pieces were hand-carved of maple, finely grained. The queen, or Ojima, wore a small pointed hat. Omakaius liked the horse, its neck curved and strong. The pawns were little round-headed people. The bishop looked just like the father, Baraga, the priest who walked miles in his snowshoes to baptize, stealing souls from the other mission and also from Manitus. The little towers at the ends, those that moved so honestly and directly, were Omakaius' favorite pieces. The two began to play. Dede usually beat her in short time, but today she managed through desperate measures to think ahead far enough to draw the game out to a phenomenal length. Geget chi waminze, said Dede approvingly. Good job, my girl. Maybe you should be the one to play cadet. Dede's compliments were so rare that when he gave them, Omakaius at first didn't absorb what she'd heard. It took until later, lying curled in her blanket, for the warmth that his approval gave her to sink into place around her heart, warming her as she fell into a good sleep. The next day, Dede took the chessboard and headed to the traders to play for supplies. 
He did not allow his family to come and watch him, for those who gathered were often rough. Layarounds, drinkers, wintering voyagers who idled their time with gambling and traders' rum. Fishtail and La Petrute were there, however, and it was from La Petrute's daughter Twilight that the girls heard the details of the game. As Twilight told it, Dede had walked in humbly, played poorly at first, causing the trader to raise the stakes. Then Dede dragged the game out awkwardly until Cadet thought he was unbeatable. Cadet was sure that he was going to win and felt confident enough to agree, laughingly to cancel part of Dede's debt. That was when Dede pounced. In six swift moves, Dede finished him off. Dede's triumph resulted in a small square of salt pork, a bit of flour, some dried apples, and a bladder of fish oil. The last item none of the children were happy to see doused every morning with the awful smell they were sure to stay healthy now but the price was high drinking the oil down gagged omakaius tears came to her eyes and more than once she wished her father was not quite so good at the game of chess old tala was sitting by the fire cleaning and oiling each part of her ancient frail gun she usually had more luck with her sharp lance but claimed that out of hunger her arms were weakening and her aim with the razor-keen instrument was off. Even her snares, set so cleverly, just where a rabbit usually wanted to and needed to hop, yielded almost none at all. Rabbits were suddenly dying from a rabbit disease that seemed to eat up their insides. Neshki, old Talo split a poor waboose rabbit and opened its skinny body to show that the creature was mush inside, a bloody pudding pudding as a result of the disease probably a sickness brought by the chinook chimookman too she growled since the death of Niwal, she refused to attempt to speak to anyone who was not on a shinobi the traders got her cold eye the missionaries her hard glare the few other white visitors who chanced onto the island received from old tallow no welcome she blamed them for the disease. She blamed them for the poor quality of game and the scarcity of food. Naturally, when so many animals were hunted for sale to white traders for fur, there would be fewer left to eat for survival. The only thing wrong with their lives that she could not blame on the Chimukaman was the weather. Though she tried, their loud voices scare off the sun. The sun is afraid of their hairy faces. If the sun is not afraid of your face, said Dede, I'm sure no Chimikaman could make it hide. You are mixed blood, jeered old Tallow, pleased to be in a mock exchange of insults. We should do wikiwigan, half burnt wood, as I am speaking to the white half or the Inashabi. Go ahead, cut, off, cut my arm, offered Dede. See if you can divide the white blood from the red blood. Sigh. Old Tallow looked toward Nokomis for help, but she just raised her eyebrows. Mikwam, if you're so strong, melt away this ice. You're the hot-headed one, said Dede. You melt it. Nobody could, for after a few weeks of kind weather, the earth had frozen with a vengeance, and spring seemed far away. Omakaius was tired of all the different kinds of ice around her. There was the just plain ice, the kind you couldn't see through, that covered the lake and hid the water and the fish below. That was the ice she had to help Nokomis chop every day from the deep hole 
they fished through. The fish were biting only rarely. They could fish all day and not even come up with a skinny lake trout. The nets they lowered through the ice hole came up frozen solid the moment they reached the surface, of course. Empty ice nets. There was the ice on the oiled paper window, ice on the inside of the cabin walls on cold mornings, ice on the frozen paths, and ice in the water bucket. Transparent ice, white ice, ice so black and solid you couldn't see through it. If only we could eat ice. If only ice was food, said Pinch. And he, as he said this, into his mind's eye came the picture of the berries he'd stuffed into his mouth last summer. Mama was right. If only he had them now. All Omakaius was interested in, she thought one evening as she fell asleep, was thin ice. Then no ice. Melting ice. She thought that until she had her dream. Nokomis put charcoal on her face one night, sent her to bed with no food, told her to remember her dreams, if she should have any. Omakaius knew that Nokomis wanted her to search for and find a spirit helper, someone great in the spirit world who would help her to recover her will to live. Omakaius tried to make herself better, to stop dwelling on worthless sadness. Omakaius couldn't help it. She didn't care about the world. Still, she did as she was told and went to sleep determined to remember any dreams she might have. No dream. As before, in the dead of winter, her dreams were blank. The moon shifted one quarter, then Nokomis tried again. Nothing. At last, when Omakaius had a particularly slow day, Nokomis made sure that she tried to dream yet again. She smothered the dry, powdery black charcoal onto Omakaius's face and sang to her as she fell asleep. That night, Omakaius dreamed. Everything was ice in her dream, and she was sliding on it, faster, slipperier. She was sliding through the woods and then down to the lake shore. Something drew her onto the icy lake shore, and although she knew the ice covered the rocks, she kept walking, exploring. Before her, there was a cave, she entered. Aheen, said a soft voice from deep in the darkness. Aheen, said Omakaius, where are you? In a glimmer of light, a motherly woman showed herself. She was dressed in the most beautiful furs, and her face was very kind, her eyes deep, thrilling, wild. Black fur rippled against her dark skin. She opened her mouth. Her teeth were long and sharp, but there was nothing to fear. I'm going to help you, said the woman. I feel sorry for you and I love you. Just remember to give me tobacco. I'm the bear spirit woman. I knew your great grandma and great grandpa. They live with me now. Omakaius woke slowly. It was like floating to the surface of a warm depth of feeling. She wanted to stay in the dream, but in just the same way that she always bobbled, bobbed to the water surface in the summer, no matter how hard she tried to sit on the lake bottom, she lost her struggle and knew after a time that she was fully awake. The dream was gone. Later that day, Omakaius told Nokomis about the dream. Immediately, Nokomis took her aside and brought her to the corner of the house near the window of oiled paper. There, sitting across from her, Nokomis smoothed Omakaius's hair to each side with her worn hands and smiled lovingly into her granddaughter's eyes. These bear people want to help you. You must not forget to give your helper tobacco whenever you think of her. She's with you, your lady. 
She's going to help you. She will be looking out for you in this world. The only thing good about this time of winter was the stories. While the snow and ice still held fast, Nokomis told them tales about the world of Manitus and Wendigos, tales of Nanabozo, the comical teacher. Those last were favorites of the girls, maybe because she so often felt small and helpless. Omakaya thought long about one particular tale Nokomis told. She loved to hear it when the flames jumped and the frozen world outside the small cabin was dark. One night, she asked her grandmother to tell it once again. Nokomis, very soon the ice will break and the lake will start moving. The animals will stir and the frogs will wake up. I know there will be no more stories until next winter. So please, the dividing muskrat one. Now? Nokomis nodded, pleased that Omakaius asked. For this story was an important teaching story, an adisokan. While her fingers swiftly flew at her quill work, she told the story of how the earth began. Nanabozo and Muskrat make an earth. Mewiza, Mewiza, long time ago, rain started. More rain as though it would never quit. The water rose so fast that our Nanabuzu ran to the top of a hill. The water flo- followed him. At the top of the hill, there was a pine tree. Nanaboza climbed the tree. Still, the water kept rising. He said to the tree, Brother, stretch yourself. The tree stretched twice as long. He climbed some more, then asked the tree to stretch again. The tree stretched four times. That's how tall it was. Finally, the tree told Nanaboza that he couldn't do any more for him. That was as high as the tree could go. But then the water stopped. Nanaboza was standing at the top of the tree. He had his head back and the water was up to his mouth. After a while, Nanaboza noticed that there was, there were animals playing in the water. Beaver, muskrat, and otter. Nanaboza spoke first to the otter, saying, Brother, could you go down and get some earth? If you do that, I will make an earth for you and me to live on. Otter said to Nanaboza, I will try. Away he went down to the bottom of the water, but Otter didn't get halfway to the bottom. He drowned and then floated up to the top. Nanaboza caught hold of the otter and looked into the otter's paws and mouth, but he didn't find any dirt. Then Nanaboza blew on Otter and brought him back to life. Did you see anything? he asked. No, said Otter. The next animal Nanaboza spoke to was Beaver. He asked him to go after some earth down below and said, If you do, I'll make an earth for us to live on. Beaver said, I'll try, and went down. Beaver was gone a long time. Pretty soon he floated to the top of the water. He had also drowned. Nanaboza caught hold of the beaver and blew on him. When beaver came to, Nanaboza examined his paws and mouth to see if there was any dirt, but he couldn't find anything. Did you see any earth at the bottom? Nanaboza said, asked Beaver. Yes, I did, said the beaver. I saw it, but I couldn't get any of it. These animals had tried and failed. Muskrat was also playing around in the water. Nanaboza didn't think much about the muskrat because he was so small, just a little animal, too weak. But after a while, he said to him, why don't you try to go after some of the dirt too? 
Muskrat said. I'll try. And he dived down. Nenoboza waited and waited a long time for Muskrat to come up to the top of the water. When he floated up to the top, he was dead from his exertion. Nenoboza caught hold of Muskrat and looked him over. Muskrat had his paws closed up tight. His mouth was shut too. Nenoboza opened Muskrat's front paw and found a grain of earth in it. He took it in his other front paw. Nenoboza found another little grain and one grain of dirt in each of his hand, hind paws. There was another grain in his mouth. When he'd found these five grains, Nenoboza blew on Muskrat until he came back to life. Then Nenoboza took the grains of earth and the palm of his hand. He held them up to the sun to dry them out. When they were all dry, he threw them around onto the water. A little island rose. The four went onto the island. Nenoboza, otter, beaver, and muskrat. Nenoboza got more earth on the island and threw it all around. The island got bigger. It got larger every time Nenoboza threw out another handful of dirt. The animals at the bottom of the water, whoever was there, all came up to the top of the water and went to the island. This earth we are on today. Omakaius knew that her Nokomis told her this story for a larger reason than just because she asked for it. She thought many times about the muskrat diving down, down, down for that little bit of dirt that made the world. She imagined muskrat finally pulling to the very bottom and grasping that bit of earth in its tiny paws. If such a small animal could do so much, Nokomis always said after she finished the story, your efforts are important too. As if he had understood Grandma's story and egg meant his own effort. Her crow hunted mice these lean days with more savage intentions than when merely keeping them away from his house, his family of humans. He hunted for survival. The bird eagerly awaited any mouse who dared enter the house. Hungrily, Andeg dropped and struck hard, killing the little animal and quickly eating it. Andeg also hunted in the woods for seeds and nuts cached by squirrels. That winter, Andeg found a little hollow in a tree next to the cabin. Some squirrel had filled the hollow with acorns, seeds, and hazelnuts, enough to feed the family for a day or two. Neshki, said Mama, her hands full one morning, look what that good bird found for us. Andeg was looking at the food cache as though he was quite sure he'd meant to share, but Mama was pleased. She scattered a big load of acorns on the hearthstones and looked at them with satisfaction before she began to break the little shells with her smoothest pounding rock. She shelled the acorns, ground them fine, roasted them with a bit of cornmeal, and that night the family had a sweet acorn cakes. From the last cone of maple sugar, she made a taste of syrup for them all, and that night, at least, they went to sleep with a comfortable warmth in their stomachs. All of them, before sleeping, thanked Andeg, who, though he usually slept outside, was invited in that night. He sat above the fire on a thick twig perch. Dede had fastened between the mortared stones. Andeg preened his feathers, very glad to be so warm bobbed his sleek head, and blinked his brilliant eyes. Tomorrow, resolved Omakaias, now that she had a bit of strength, she would make her small important effort like the muskrat. 
She would go out with Ende and find more squirrel caches in the woods. She didn't reckon on her own weakness, however, nor could she ever have imagined the swiftness of old Tallow's justice. The day dawned pure and cold. The Comus and Mama mixed up some water with the thin paste of acorn flour left from the night before. Dede came, up, came in with a fish so tiny and poor-looking that in spite of their hunger, everyone laughed out loud when he lifted it proudly into the air. Everyone, that is, except Mama. She just rested her eyes a little more softly on her husband than usual and went on with her beadwork. Omakaius, ready to do her part, dressed in her warmest clothes, wrapped lengths of rabbit skin around her feet, put moccasins over them, and then, Andeg on her shoulder, went to look for the squirrel catches. Although she had fished with Nokomis, this was the first time Omakaius had ventured into the woods since the day she had entered the cabin. On that day, she had followed the sickness inside and determined to do battle with the evil spirit of the disease. She had lost her beloved Niwa. Now she decided that she would not lose any of her family to the weakness of hunger. She would find food somewhere. Dizziness overcame her. Her knees felt watery and her blood ran thin. She paused, holding onto a tree, and made her own way toward the woods beyond. First, she had to pass Old Tallow's place, and she narrowed her eyes at the path and stepped forward which determined qu with determined quickness. Prepared not to stop until Andeg told her where to find more nuts and acorns, she didn't reckon on the yellow dog. He was there in her path as she neared Old Tallow's cabin. She, could, she wouldn't look at him, she decided, but she couldn't help remembering the words his look had given her last summer. Wait until next time. I'll get you then. I'll get you when no one is around. What could he do to her? Even in her weakness, she would be mentally strong. She would show him no fear. But as though he sensed the truth of her condition and not the determined pluck of her heart, the yellow dog stepped forward. As always, he snarled and then retreated when Omakaius grabbed a stick. When she brandished her stick, the stick, however, a spinning haze of brilliant dots flooded up before her eyes. Suddenly, it was as though she stepped over the edge of a black cliff. She stumbled, fainting to the ground. The yellow dog lunged forward. Andeg screamed and tore with his beak at the dog's eyes. But the dog was eager, at last, to get the better of a human. As the clumsiest hunting dog of old Talos pack, he needed to stand tall over something, even if only a sick little girl. Omakaius groped for her stick, but suddenly the yellow dog had it in his teeth. He growled, worried the stick as though he'd caught a gopher, then dropped it and with an eager bite tore into the blanket that fell from her arm. With a vicious lunge, he bit Omakaius above the wrist and jumped back, eyes blazing with cowardly triumph. Omakaius tried to yell, but her voice stuck in her throat, a squeak. She felt a rushing blackness overwhelm her again, tried to throw herself upward, tried to growl back and challenge the dog. With excitement, though, the dog realized he had her at his mercy at last. He jumped forward again. This time he fell upon her leg and bit deep. Omakaius heard a loud scream, 
her own scream and pain blotted her sight then as she swirled into darkness she woke a moment later in old Tallow's arms what happened nearby the yellow dog cringed and tried to slink away from old Tallow's glare seeing that omakaius was all right old Tallow carefully put the girl down the a swift bear-like swipe she grabbed the dog and held him by the scruff of the neck with one hand he whimpered and snarled at Omakaius as though to say, She made me do it. Old Tallow shook her head sadly, lifted her axe. Ignoring Omakaius, who panted weakly on the snowy ground, Old Tallow spoke to her dog as she would to a human. Sadly and firmly holding him by the neck, she told the dog what he had done. Didn't I warn you? Didn't I say to you? Didn't I tell you many times that you must never hurt this one? Yes. Nadai, you look at me now with pleading eyes, but I spared you many times before. Each time I spared your life, I always told you what would happen if you were so foolish again. Now, my foolish friend, you must die. With that, Old Tallow brought the blunt end of her axe down on the yellow dog's head. He crumpled to the ground. I, my auntie! The yellow dog had hated her, perhaps even meant to kill her, but Omakaius hadn't counted on such a cruel and sudden end to the dog's cowardly life. Old Tallow's justice was harsh. Her sentence was carried out in an instant, but that didn't mean that her heart was hard or that she didn't mourn for her friend. It just meant that Omakaius was more important. The last that Omakaius saw of the yellow dog, he was bundled in Old Tallow's arms, the strong old woman was walking away, and in her step there was the sadness of parting with an old but dangerously foolish friend. Omakaius got slowly to her feet, wobbled forward as she knew that she would have to return to the cabin. She still wasn't strong enough to hunt for food. With Endeg's encouragement, she made it back to the door and fell through her, vi though her, fell through her vision darkening. Her stomach creaked so empty it. Stuck to the back of her body. She needed Grandma's help to dress the bites that throbbed her and stung. They must have food. They must have food. Soon they must eat, she knew, or they would all lie in the ground with two who had gone before. It was the great Buck One Horn who saved them, who gave them life. Grandma woke two mornings later and called Dede to her side to talk. For she was so weak from hunger she could only sit wrapped in her blanket by the fire i dreamed last night she told him and now you must do everything just as i say dede listened intently take the small path to the north that leads past the fish camp said grandma gesturing slowly she squinted looked deeper into her dream nodded slowly when you come to the tallest of the trees go toward the lake then around the rocks and back into the trees there, the buck will wait for you. Dede knew when Grandma dreamed, especially in the, this extremity, it was a true dream and must be followed. First, however, he prepared himself carefully to meet the animal spirit. He washed, put on his best clothing, new moccasins, and had Mama comb and braid his hair. He cleaned and oiled his new gun and prepared it with extra care. Then he went immediately out and followed Grandma's directions exactly just as she had said in the clearing past the rocks and back in the trees one horn was waiting the great buck stood still in the calm light dede lifted his gun 
breathe his hopes. Then thanks. One shot. The shot was true. One horn died easily right then. Dede gave tobacco to the deer's spirit and thanked him. Brought back as much as he could carry. Then buried the rest of the deer in the snow. Returning, he gave the venison to his starving family and to Tala, who shared it out to Auntie Muskrat, to La Patrice, hungry children, and to Fishtail. That night, as Omakaius ate the stew of venison that Mama cooked, she felt herself grow stronger with each bite. She remembered the day she and Angeline stood before the beauty of one horn. They looked on him amazed, and he did not run away. Had he known at that time that they would need his very existence? Again, Omakaius remembered the proud, soft radiance of his brown eyes. She closed her eyes and saw one horn feasted, honored, and decorated with her grandmother's finest beadwork. Opening her eyes again, she thanked the animal for saving her life. And then, just as she finished thinking the solemn thought, pinch, his belly was full, backed up too close to the hearth and set the seat of his pants on fire. Mama! He jumped away, a little flame shooting from his rear. In sudden inspiration, he sat down directly in the water bucket. Everybody looked at him, at first in shock, and then once he had seen, once he was seen to have suffered no harm, it was Mama, first of all, who started to laugh, and Pinch laughed too. Laughed so hard that he wedged his behind farther into the bucket and could not get out. Laughed and laughed, harder and harder, even after that terrible winter, as though he understood from then on how important it was to be funny. Pinch gave laughter to them. He became a joker, a trick player, and joked on himself as well as others. Perhaps it was that first saving laugh, the best thing any of them had heard since before the death of Niwa, that made him proud. He had saved his family in a way every bit as much as the one as one horn. The great deer had saved their bodies, and Pinch's absurd jump had saved their souls. For Nokomis said, shortly after that, shortly after that, her own grandmother had believed that the soul of the Anishabig is made of laughter. If there is no laughter, the soul dies. Pinch brought laughter back to life. He brought their souls back into their bodies. The harder they laughed, the more they knew now they would survive.